The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. The material that you encounter on um, psychedelics is coming from your own inner self. It's coming from your unconscious. And if you don't resolve it, you know, and then the drug wears off, that material is still there. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode 19. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And I'm really excited about this episode because I have been wanting to interview Rick Doblin for years, and he didn't disappoint. In 1982, Rick Doblin was a psychedelic undergraduate researcher studying at the New College in Florida. And that's when he embarked on this workshop with the godfather of psychedelic medical research, Stanislav Grof. This was at the legendary Eslin Institute in Big Sur, California. And it was here that he first learned of a drug called MDMA. It was still legal at the time. And Rick's first experience with MDMA was not great, but it was intriguing enough to send him on a lifelong quest to legitimize MDMA and other psychedelics as therapeutic drugs. Over 30 years later, here we are. Rick Doblin is the founder and executive director of MAPS, and MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Their goal? To build a base of improved mental health and spirituality in the world. And they're doing this by supporting the study of psychedelics as medicine. After over 35 years, MAPS is finally closing in on FDA approval for MDMA-assisted therapy in the treatment of severe and chronic PTSD. The last phase is phase three in this clinical trial, and it will cost an estimated $26 million. So far, MAPS has raised $20 million for this phase. Now in steps the Pineapple Fund and an opportunity for you. One of the new crypto millionaires, someone who has made incredible amounts of money in this dynamic and volatile cryptocurrency market, has established a fund to distribute millions of dollars in cryptocurrency to charities around the world. And MAPS is one of Pineapple Fund's major charities. And here's where you can come in. The Pineapple Fund has established a match. It will match dollar for dollar the next $4 million in contributions to the nonprofit MAPS. The match expires sometime in March, and I'll give you the links to check out the exact dates. But the purpose of the match is to inspire others to complete funding for MAPS upcoming phase three clinical trials of this MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD. So go to the show notes at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog and look for the link to contribute. And as usual, we have all the links to all of the interesting books, institutes, and references in the interview. You can also go directly to maps.org and click on the donation button. Donate with cryptocurrency, 
or old-timey money. It's your choice. In this episode, we talk about Rick's journey to psychedelic research and how he founded MAPS. We talk about what is a psychedelic, and this answer may surprise you. It kind of surprised me. We talk about his journey with the FDA and the DEA, and we learn and hear the story of the first person he helped overcome PTSD with MDMA. We learn why his first experience was scary with both LSD and then later with MDMA, and how he has learned to have great psychedelic experiences and how to avoid the bad ones and how you, if you're interested, can do this too. We talk about why some people never recover from psychedelic experiences. It's not very common, but it does happen. And we talk about appropriate psychedelics to enhance therapy and what types of therapy work best with MDMA for PTSD treatment. We talk about MAPS as a B corporation and that structure. And I find this really interesting. I think this B structure could potentially inform other pharmaceutical companies and certainly other pharmaceutical companies can learn from this structure. We talk about how to have the best MDMA experience if you're so inclined and what you may be missing if you're not, and who should stay away from psychedelics and the dangers and how to minimize those. We don't shy away from that. Rick's goal is to open thousands of psychedelic treatment centers around the world, and he's well on his way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rick as much as I did, and now I give you my conversation with Rick Doblin. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're uh, inviting me on. I really appreciate it. This is going to be fun. I read that you grew up outside of Chicago in the 60s and that you were a very politically involved teenager. I'm thinking that our <laughs> I'm thinking that our political climate looks like a love fest compared to the assassinations and riots and tumult of 1968. Were you brought up in a family and culture where counterculture was embraced or did you rebel against your upbringing? Well, um, I did not rebel against my upbringing. My upbringing was very progressive, left-wing politics. Um, but they were my parents. My dad's a doctor. My mother's a teacher. They were not interested in psychedelics, and they were—they're not drinkers. They're not smokers. Um, they were just uh, left-wing progressives, and they were very supportive of what I was involved in. You know, I actually volunteered to be precinct captain for Eugene McCarthy in 1968 when I was um, only 14 and a half years old. And when uh, he didn't carry the uh, district, which <laughs> nobody was surprised about, that's why I could be the precinct captain. Um, <laughs> I volunteered for Mayor Daley actually, and worked in the Chicago convention, the Democratic convention in 1968 as a runner for the delegates. And so I was in the convention when the riots were happening uh, downtown Chicago, and that really strongly radicalized me. But I think because I was um, grown up in the system, in a sense, um, you know, uh, not counterculture, but just on the progressive wing, that's really behind a lot of my interest now in mainstreaming psychedelics and having them become part of the culture. And I think self-identifying as a counterculture is self-defeating in certain ways. And I really want what I am and who I am to be integrated into the mainstream. All right. So let's get clarification about what psychedelic drugs are. Because when I think about psychedelic drugs, I think of MDMA and LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, ibogaine. I've heard people refer to marijuana as a psychedelic. Is marijuana a psychedelic? And, and before we get started, how do you define psychedelics? 
Well, the word psychedelic was invented in the 1950s, and it was a discussion between a fellow Humphrey Osmond and Aldous Huxley. And they were trying to come up with a new word for what these drugs were. And Humphrey Osmond proposed a word, psychedelic, meaning delos from the Greek to reveal uh, or to bring forth, to manifest, and psyche, the mind, the spirit. So the definition of psychedelic that's commonly accepted as mind manifesting, that can be interpreted in many different ways. Most people, when they think of psychedelics, they think of the classic psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin, ibogaine, where it affects your ego processing, it affects your vision, that there's this ego dissolution, a lot of it, that it's hard to talk, it's nonverbal, preverbal in, in many ways. Those are the classic psychedelics. When I created MAPS in 1986 as basically a nonprofit psychedelic pharmaceutical company, I decided to use the word in a broader sense. So psychedelic can include dreams, psychedelic can include meditation, psychedelic can include marijuana, and psychedelic can include MDMA. So it's things that are mind manifesting both through drugs and through other means, fasting, um, exercise, dreaming, all different ways. Using that definition, what would you say was the first psychedelic that you ever tried? Well, the very first psychedelic I ever tried was LSD. And, uh, well, I guess you to say I tried marijuana a few times before that. So my introduction, you know, I, I did grow up in, a, uh, in Chicago, outside of Chicago, in Skokie for a while. I thought the whole world was Jewish. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I was... the first time I went to Skokie in the 80s, and it was during Christmas, and I they had all these Hanukkah decorations, and I was just so astonished. Anyway, so I understand how you might think that. Yeah, and then, then we went to um, you know Winnetka, which is a little bit further out of the city and more conservative. And in fact, uh, they weren't allowing um, – there, there was a problem with people refusing to sell land to Jews. So my parents actually combined with three other Jewish families, and they found a Christian friend who was willing to purchase land – um, and then divided up among four Jewish families. So that's how we got to Winnetka. Um, but I, I did try marijuana one time when I was in high school, only one time. It was uh, horrible. Um, a friend and I didn't have any rolling papers, so we rolled it up in a newspaper. We, we didn't know any better. <laughs> um, and it was super harsh. Uh, but but I did actually uh, listen to Carlos Santana actually, and uh, and found that to be intriguing. Um, but when I was at college, it really took being at college, and I went to college in Sarasota, Florida, New College of Florida. It's now the Honors College of the State of Florida. It was a private school when I went to it. It had been started in the '60s, and it was um, an experimental school without grades, written evaluations, uh, heavy emphasis on. Uh, following the student's curiosity. Everybody had to do a senior thesis. And there was a tradition there of uh, people uh, doing introspective work with psychedelics. And so I just sort of stumbled on that. There was also a tradition of the outdoor Olympic-sized swimming pool. Again, this is in Florida. It was a nudist colony. At the, was, at the university, or at yeah, the college, so this, rather, at the college. Yeah, this was a private school um, at the time. You know, the the Campus police were there to protect us from the real police. And it, <laughs> it, it felt like an oasis of sanity with this, uh, you know, energies coming out from the underground, the sexual energies, the psychedelic energies, and also the combination with intellectual rigor and following the student's curiosity. And, and so in that context, 
um, I decided I would try LSD. And I found that it was um, much more difficult than I had anticipated, that I, I didn't have the emotional skill to really um, courageously let go into my feelings. I was overly intellectualized and way underdeveloped emotionally and spiritually. But I had intimations that there was something really deep and profound about the experience, even though I was scared and fearful and defensive to a lot of it. I just felt like I touched on things that were very important. And I did have this sense of connection to a larger world, to the sweep of history and evolution. It, it was very inspiring. And I decided that I would continue to try to do more experiments with LSD. I was also reading uh, John Lilly, who was um, a person who developed the flotation tank called the isolation tank at the time. And he, in the 50s and early 60s, he was paid for by the Navy. He did LSD in the tank and wrote a book called Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer, very early understandings of how the mind works and trying to map computers to, to our own consciousness. Um, and, and so we started experimenting at college with um, limiting sensory input, doing psychedelics in these uh, sensory constrained environments. And I would reach this point where um, I would get scared and I wouldn't be able to really go any further. And I felt like this was um, a challenge and a mission. And so I would try it a couple weeks later and this frozen point would come sooner and sooner in the experience. Um, what do you then, mean by the frozen point? Well, the frozen point where I'm just so scared. I'm you're just holding on. Oh, so it it's, would come sooner, even with experience, that frozen point would come sooner or yeah, earlier? Every, earlier in the session. It used to be at six, eight hours. Then it would be six hours, four. Yeah. The material that, that you encounter on um, psychedelics is coming from your own inner self. It's coming from your unconscious. And if you don't resolve it, you know, and then the drug wears off, that material is still there, right? Uh, and it colors how you see things, and and that's of course the flip side is why these drugs can be so effective therapeutically because there's a lot of unconscious fears and anxieties and ideas and thoughts that people have that that color their behavior, but they're not aware of. And when you can get deeper into those levels, you can work through them. But I, I'd reached this point where I was just too scared to go further, and I went to the guidance counselor at college. And I, I said, I need help with my LSD experiences. And this was 1972. And this was a time where this kind of experimentation was rather widespread culturally and in colleges. And the guidance counselor took me seriously. And he said, this is important what you're trying to do. And I, I see why you're having these problems. And there's a book that you might want to read. And he handed me a manuscript copy of a book that had not yet been published called Realms of the Human Unconscious wow. by Dr. Stanislav Grof. And it was about his early work with LSD, both in the Czech Republic and then at Johns Hopkins at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center. And it was reading that book that really transformed my life. That was 1972 when I was 18 years old. And now I just recently turned 64. And everything goes back to reading that book. And I've been on this track since then. And what was so impressive about the book was that it talked about legal scientific research with psychedelics. And it talked about the mystical experience and levels of consciousness that were experimentally derived 
from thousands of subjects and LSD experiences. And it felt like this was touching on spirituality, values, and yet it had a scientific framework, and it had the reality testing of not just being abstract philosophy or musings on consciousness, but it was focused on psychotherapy. Is there a way to actually help people learn and grow? And politically, what I had been aware of since very early ages, you know, as I said, growing up in Skokie, where everybody's Jewish, I was just very much profoundly educated about the Holocaust and have a lot of Israeli relatives and, you know, grew up under the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And I just was aware that um, this sense of separateness that we have that can permit us to demonize others, to scapegoat others, to uh, dehumanize others, to kill them and murder them, um, and similarly to the environment, that the environment is out there. It's not part of ourselves. We can trash the environment. We can take what we want. We don't need to think about pollution. That that this kind of sense of connection, that this spiritual experience that Stan Groff was writing about in Realms of the Human Unconscious had profound political implications. And I think that's what many people, millions of people, discovered during the 60s. But then there was the backlash. And so I was learning about this after the backlash, when the research was pretty much wiped out around the world, when Nixon had uh, declared Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America, when the Controlled Substances Act had been passed in 1970. And I thought, uh, at the same time also, I was a draft resistor, and so I was planning to go to jail for not registering for the draft for Vietnam. Right. And, um, and, and so my parents were sympathetic with that. You know, they were very... Um, as I said, progressive, but but that sort of appalled them that I would then have this criminal record and I would never be able to be a professional of any kind, you know, a doctor or lawyer, because I'd be this felon. And I just felt like this was my, um, my life and my choice. And if the price of being accepted into society was willing to go kill other people, I wasn't willing to pay that price or be killed myself. So, um, when I read Stan Groff's book, I thought, aha, here's a path to the future. I need psychedelic therapy. I can become an underground psychedelic therapist, and you don't need a license for that. And I can work as best I can to bring back psychedelics and bring them into the mainstream so that more people would have this opportunity to have this direct experience of how we're all interconnected. And then that would be a major contribution to cultural consciousness evolution. And so that's really where uh, that track I've been on since uh, 18 years old. What in that book, before we get into the story of your starting the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies or MAPS, what would be that one nugget that you would extract that you wish that your pre-psychedelic or pre-LSD experienced 18-year-old self knew? Well, I, I wish that um, that I would have known that when you let go, that you may feel like you're going to die, or you may feel like you're going to go crazy, or you may feel like you'll never return. But it's that letting go with the spirit of acceptance and exploration that is really the healing process. So that where I was holding on, that if I would have known more about how um, the holding on is the friction, is the stress, but that the letting go is the learning, is the opening up into the new. 
Now, that's not as easy to do as it is to say. And again, we were doing this not in a therapeutic context, uh, but, I, but I wish that I, I would have known more that people had explored these spaces, that a lot of uh, this, that, that you wouldn't die, you might, your ego is sort of dissolved and that gets muddied and confused with um, physical death. So sort of the, and, and the ego doesn't actually really die either. And we need our ego. It's more about uh, putting it in its proper place. So it's really the social proof that science and past experience of other people provided to say, I'm not going to die. Just stop being so fearful of dying and holding on to this concept of, wow, this is, I'm never going to return from this. Yeah. Dying or going crazy. Right. You could say that. Yeah. And in fact, Stan Groff says something beautiful. He didn't say that in this book, but he said the full expression of an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. Wow. And what, what he means by that, I think is um, that if you can fully express and experience something, then things will change that you've done it. You know, people can think about that in terms of grief. Somebody that they love has died and you get all bottled up in grief. And when you can let out the pain and the anguish, then things move on. And, you know, that's the healing power of time. Is that what people mean when they say going deep? What does it mean to go deep? I think go deep means uh, that is partially what they mean, but it also means going beyond the conscious understandings to, um, a deeper kind of experience, a fuller experience of an emotion of um, the way in which psychedelics really open up the mind-body connection as well. So that, um, you know, sometimes things come to you in a psychedelic state in terms of physical pains that have symbolic meaning. And then if you can go into these physical pains, a lot of times they'll open up into a past memory or a recollection. So going deep means going beyond our conscious understanding to those deeper levels of the brain. Okay, that makes sense. Although it seems very difficult to understand just from an intellectual point of view. And I also, when I hear that, and again, I definitely want to jump right into your starting maps, but when I hear that, I'm curious about how you balance the fact that some people are and maybe this is misinformation, but some people never seem to recover from psychedelic experiences. Is that just misinformation or is that real? No, no, real? That, 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 that's real for sure. And I think the understanding that we have now is because they didn't go deep enough. So when, when people don't recover, a lot of times what's happened is like this frozen point that we talked about, that you get to this point, it's really, really frightening. You hold on and you resist, and then it gets frozen in place in a way. So th there's many, many people that I've, that I know actually that talk about how when they smoke marijuana, it brings back prior difficult psychedelic experiences, sometimes from, um, you know, decades and decades before. So I, I, I also want to say that we're talking about psychedelic drug, but really what we're doing research with and ways that I think these drugs should be used is in a context of psychotherapy or a context of a spiritual tradition where there's preparation, there's the experience, and then there's the integration of the experience. And so a lot of times when people are 
having psychedelic experiences that they don't recover from, they're not doing it in a therapeutic context. They're not doing it with the proper support. They're, they're often pathologized shortly thereafter. I mean, I, I live near uh, McLean Hospital. So I live in Boston, and McLean Hospital is part of Harvard Medical School, and it's considered to be you know, the leading um, center for private mental health research in, in America. And they have an inpatient ward. And, and there was um, a young um, son of a friend of ours. Uh, you know, we knew her, her mother, and, uh, and he ended up having an LSD experience that was really difficult for him at college. And, and so he went to McLean Hospital. And so they started giving him all sorts of other drugs. They started giving him all sorts of labels. We had a um, psychiatrist that worked there at McLean that was trained in the work with psychedelics. He wanted to go visit this young man, and the people at the um, that ran the inpatient ward wouldn't let him, wouldn't let this other psychiatrist talk to him about helping this kid integrate. And eventually, they gave him electroconvulsive therapy. So this just is about treating the symptoms and not ever addressing the cause. And I think that there are cautionary tales for sure. And what we've been able to show in a therapeutic context with preparation, support during the experience, and integration afterwards, that we have worked with um, so far 107 PTSD patients. Um, quite a number of them had uh, contemplated or actually attempted suicide before that. We didn't have anybody attempt suicide as a result of our work with MDMA. So I think that there are cautionary tales and that it's about this mismatch between the context in which it's taken and people's um, psychological need for support and for integration. Okay. And that dives right into MAPS and the work that you're doing. And I have a lot of questions around treatment and how you use MDMA in conjunction with therapy. But before we do that, tell us the story of how you started MAPS. Well, as I mentioned, I, I learned about LSD research um, in 1972 after the backlash. And it, and my LSD experiences were really quite difficult. I went to the guidance counselor. I ended up dropping out of college for 10 years. And I still was committed to becoming a psychedelic therapist, but I felt like I had to learn how to work within the world I learned I had to get more grounded. You can't just take more and more drugs and develop. Uh, it just takes time. And, and so I, I had this decade of doing integration work. And in 1982, I decided that I was ready to go back to college. And I went back to the same college, uh, new college. And it turned out that the very first month that I was going to be in school, there was a month-long workshop that was being offered by Stan Groff and Christina Groff, his wife, at Esalen in Big Sur, California. And it was on the mystical quest. And I thought, wow, what a terrific opportunity to try to start my new education with training from Stan and Christina, and that I could also develop a multi-year curriculum in consultation with Stan and others about what it would really mean to be trained to become a psychedelic researcher and a psychedelic therapist. And luckily, New College was very much open to off-campus study. And I had some good relationships with some of the professors. And so I got permission to go to Esalen in September of 1982 to attend this workshop. And that's how I started college again. And while I was there, 
this young woman named Debbie Harlow wasn't in the workshop, but she came by to Esalen, and she had this new drug called MDMA. It was actually, the code name was Adam, and she was saying that this drug helps you to talk to people, and it helps you to listen to people, and it opens your heart, and it, it helps with feelings of love. And, and I thought, well, I'm fine. I, I feel love. I, I have friends. Um, I can talk to people. This is not a very interesting drug. And then I saw a group of people doing it, and they were sitting in a circle and talking to each other. And I was like, how interesting can this be? Because when you take a full dose of LSD, you, there's periods of time you can't even talk. You can't, you know, it's pre-verbal. So I just thought this is um, potentially just a lightweight drug and not that interesting. But I was smart enough to buy some <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, take some home and and um, and do it with my girlfriend. And once I tried it, once we tried it, um, I was shocked really at how profound it was, how subtle of a difference it was the normal processing, but how crucial of a difference, uh, much more self-acceptance. It, it, it reduces the fear of uh, challenging emotions. So emotions of rejection and emotions of loneliness, um, you can accept those so that when you're with somebody else uh, who you care about, you, you, you are a better um, listener, more empathic, um, and, and there was a lot of feelings of love that were generated. And I remember during our experience, we were saying, this is not the drug speaking. This is us. This is our going deep, as you might say. This is um, accessing deeper parts of how we're really in love with each other and able to share that. So I was just profoundly impacted. And at the time when I was introduced to Adam as an underground psychedelic therapy tool, it was also just starting to be used as ecstasy, as a party drug. And so I thought, aha, I learned about LSD after the backlash. Now I'm learning about MDMA before the backlash. This was during the Nancy Reagan, just say no escalation of the drug war in the early 80s. So it was clear that there was going to be a backlash, that MDMA would be criminalized, that ecstasy would be criminalized, but that there was this window of time that we didn't know how long it would be where we could do a lot of work to prepare for the backlash. So that, that's the context in which I learned about MDMA for the first time. And then it was two years later in the summer of 84 that the DEA moved to criminalize MDMA. So what did you do between the time you learned about it and the time that uh, the FDA criminalized MDMA? Because the drug was legal, we tried to introduce it to as many influential people as we could who might be willing to testify in a lawsuit against the DEA when they moved to criminalize it about the therapeutic potential. So uh, late in 83, I, I read a book by Robert Mueller, who was the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. He was like the mystic at the UN. The book was called New Genesis, uh, Shaping a Global Spirituality. The thesis being that um, we have the United Nations to mediate disputes between countries, but a lot of these countries, their disputes were religious-based. And we needed to help people move from fundamentalist perspectives that they've got the one right religion and that have kind of a global spirituality, which doesn't mean a one world religion and everybody loses their traditions. It just means that there's a, a sense that, um, that we're all in this incredible spiritual adventure together. And so I wrote to Robert Mueller and I said, great book, but you didn't say a word about psychedelics. Would you be willing to, uh, 
helped me try to bring back psychedelic research. And he gave me a list of mystics to contact. And I read between the lines and I heard him say, send them MDMA. So I did that. So during this period of two years, we introduced MDMA to various mystics who would report back to Robert Mueller, uh, Brother David Steindl-Rost, a Roman Catholic monk, uh, Rabbi Zalman Schachter, a Jewish rabbi, uh, Vanya Palmer is a Zen Buddhist expert, uh, monk, very much. And then we also tried to introduce people in psychiatry and psychotherapy who would be willing to try these drugs because they were legal. And I started a nonprofit before MAPS, and we used it to do an initial study, which was a uh, also in, early in the summer of uh, 84. It was a, a basically a safety study with 30 people who had previous experience with MDMA. We got a bunch of doctors and we, we didn't do it in your traditional way of IRB approval and to, but because we didn't want to alert anybody to the fact that there was this drug right. that was new. But but we did a, a safety study and we prepared our witness list and, and that's basically how we prepared. And then in the summer of 84, the DEA moved to criminalize MDMA. Andy Weil, who was um, many people know him as a very was a great um, advocate for complementary and alternative medicine. Um, he had a friend, Rick Cotton, from Harvard that they had gone together. Rick Cotton was part of a, uh, was a lawyer with a big Washington, D.C. law firm. And um, Andy recommended that they might take the case pro bono, and they agreed to do that. So then we gathered the necessary petitions, and then I went to Washington carrying the petition in my hands, and I walked into the DEA office, and I said, um, we're within this 30-day public comment period, and we would like to have a hearing on whether MDMA should be criminalized or not. We met all the legal requirements. We had a big D.C. law firm working pro bono, and so uh, the DEA had to say yes, and that led to a whole series of uh, DEA administrative law judge hearings. What a project. Who was the very first person that you helped overcome PTSD with MDMA? Well, this was uh, in 1984. So, you know, ever since 1972, I was training in my mind. I wanted to be a psychedelic therapist. I wanted to go through psychedelic therapy myself. And I wanted to get a clinical psych PhD in order to do psychotherapy outcome research. So in um, the early part of 1984, Stan and Christina Groff had another workshop that was taking place at Esalen, and it was called the Spiritual Emergence Network. So it's about people that have a crisis, either drug-induced or not, uh, causing them to question their values, causing them in some ways to question their sanity. And it's how do you help people integrate these deeper insights as as they're opening up to them? And so, uh, and it, it was in a way about training uh, therapists for working with people, uh, changing their sense of who they were. So I, I, I went to that workshop and it was tremendous. It was absolutely tremendous. And I came home from it and I was only home for um, a few days. And a friend of mine called me and he said, um, you had previously given me MDMA, sold me MDMA, and I did it with my girlfriend. And under the influence of MDMA, she recalled prior trauma, uh, raped and almost killed. And this brought her such fear and such um, disruption that she checked herself into a mental institution to protect herself from killing herself. They gave her the same old drugs. She'd been in and out of mental institutions earlier in her life. They gave her the same old drugs, and she came out. And she was committed to um, 
taking her life. There was nothing for her, she saw. And so my friend said, would you work with her? And this, this was a terrifying moment for me because I didn't feel qualified as a psychotherapist. Um, I was learning about it, but, uh, but I didn't feel qualified. But at the same time, I was partially responsible for everything sold them the MDMA. And also, this is back when it was still legal. And then also, there was, um, this was a challenge. This is where my life was directed and to try to do therapy. And so I think this is one of the key turning points of my life and facing this fear of what I do. And so I, I agreed to speak to her. And I said, if you just agreed not to commit suicide when we're together, I'll be willing to work with you. And I'll get some other female friends of mine who will create this space, therapeutic support space for you. And we'll try to do work with um, MDMA and, and other psychedelics potentially. And um, she agreed to do that. And so we actually did this work in, in 84. And the first session was with MDMA. The second was with um, LSD. And the LSD proved to be too painful, too powerful, too symbolic. She couldn't really handle it. Uh, sort of reached those frozen spaces, but she had a lot more trauma than I ever did, but she was stuck. And then I thought, well, let's do a half a dose of MDMA. Maybe that'll add this reduction of fear and help you process it. And she agreed to do that in the middle of the LSD session. And that was the transformative moment. And that really opened her up. It, it moved from symbolic to her actual life. And she was able to overcome her PTSD. She was able to look, it was a date rape story. So she was able to look at why she trusted this guy, why she thought he was good, where she went wrong. So she was in a way able to recover her sense of discrimination before she couldn't trust herself because her instincts had led to this horrible situation. And now, now she was able to do that. So now she's one of the therapists working on our project. When you were administering the MDMA and the LSD and then the MDMA with the LSD, were you also administering any kind of therapy? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, for and sure. how would you describe yeah, yeah. that? Well, the therapy, for, for those people that are interested, on the MAPS website, maps.org, if you go to the research section and you go to uh, the MDMA, we have what's called the treatment manual. And that is an articulation of what the therapy is like and how you do it. It describes the therapeutic method. So it's called the treatment manual. But the basic concept is that the person's unconscious is the guide. The therapy, we don't use the word guides. We're not guides. We don't know where to go. It's, um, it, the person knows where to go. Their unconscious knows where to go. So it's, it's supportive of what's emerging. It's encouraging people to express and let out rather than keep in. So that was the one thing you asked me what I wish I would have learned or knew when I read Stan Grouse's book beforehand. It's this idea of going in to is the way out, not going back or not freezing. That, that this um, We talk about it in terms of, uh, we do psychedelic uh, harm reduction at Burning Man and elsewhere in our Zendo project. And one of the principles is talk through, not talk down to try to address it. So um, I think what really was um, the therapeutic context was first off preparation, understanding was it's an eight-hour session, roughly. Sometimes it's even longer when you add LSD. Um, and so you're supporting somebody, but they're the leaders as they experience different things, and you're trying to there to support them. And then um, they rest, and then over the next days and weeks, there's a lot of integrative psychotherapy to talk about what happened, to talk about 
and reflect on those things that happen because things are happening so fast sometimes during the therapy session and you're, you're trying to go with the flow. That's where that expression goes from, you know, is sort of go with the flow, not to hold on, but to let things keep moving and changing and to, to be a conduit for this energy that's flowing through you with as little resistance as possible. So you can think of that resistance and that friction is what causes the problems. I mean, one of my early sessions, when I got really scared, I started feeling like this energy was just building up in my brain. And it was so uh, problematic that I felt it was like melting my brain. Hmm. And then, you know, it's just this idea that, um, and, and, and I think in terms of electricity, you know, it, you know, if, if you're grounded, you can, uh, the electricity will go right through you. If you're resistance, it'll fry you. Are there findings in neuroscience that have informed your research or given more of a tangible explanation for some of the things that were initially more ethereal? Yes, yes. Um, there, there's two parts of your question. One is, do we understand a little bit more about mechanisms of action? And yes. The other part is, have we learned things from the neuroscience that have fundamentally changed our therapeutic process? The answer to that is not yet. But what we have learned from neuroscience from the perspective of MDMA is that there's reduction of activity in the amygdala, which is where fear is processed. There's increased connectivity between the hippocampus and the amygdala where you're processing emotions and memories. There's an enhanced activity in the frontal cortex where you put things in association, sort of long-term storage. People with PTSD also have brain changes in the opposite direction so that PTSD increases activity in the amygdala because you're always reacting in a fearful way. It um, decreases activity in the frontal cortex because you're not thinking as clearly as logically. You're, so you're, you're more fearful, but you don't have the processing skills to deal with the fear. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. MDMA also releases uh, oxytocin and prolactin which are hormones of nurturing and bonding, pregnant women, nursing mothers, um, it, it, people who are in love, you know, you, you stimulate oxytocin and prolactin. So that's a part of what's happening with MDMA. So what we're learning more and more is about what's called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. And what that process means basically is that we have what's called episodic memory. So we can remember episodes, but then there's an emotional memory that's attached to that, but they're separate. The remembering what happened and then the emotion connected to it. And with PTSD, people remember what happened, but they have these terrifying emotions connected to it. And also they don't remember all that's happened because some part of it is often so painful that it's even submerged deeper in the unconscious. So under the influence of MDMA, People can look at the trauma. Their memory for the trauma is enhanced. They remember more of what happened because they're not as fearful. And because they have this sense of peacefulness, of self-acceptance, and also MDMA gives you a sense of time, of the moment, that, that you're now in the now, and this thing happened in the past, and it's not happening right now. And so you're able to place these memories more in long-term memory storage. And when you reconsolidate the memory, so you, you, you pull together these memories from different parts of your brain, um, when you're able to look at the episodic memory from a position of safety 
and the fact that it's in the past, when the memory is stored, this memory reconsolidation, you've substituted that emotion of peacefulness and reflection for that emotion of fear and anxiety. So that then later on, when you remember the trauma, you're remembering it from this is happening to this happened to me in the past, but it's not happening right now. And this is a part of my history. I can learn from it, but it doesn't have to color everything that I do. So when I was working with this one with this woman in 1984, there was a period of time where she was projecting onto me that I was the rapist. And I, it was going back. She was seeing me, then she was seeing the rapist. She was, it was going back and forth. And that's sort of how um, the memories, it colors everything that you see. And she could finally feel like um, she could meet, she, she could see me through that screen of how she sees a lot of the world. And that then she could relax and go through the therapeutic process. How important is reality? As I'm listening to you, I hear that there is some part, or maybe it's part of the journey of the psycho psychedelic experience that reveals stuff that is true, but also some stuff that is perceived as true, but it's not true. And does that matter? And what beyond legal ramifications are there for believing what's not true? Or do you find that when you get through the whole therapeutic experience, those distinctions are clear? Well, it's a crucial question, but there's it's crucial for understanding what really happened, but it's not necessarily crucial for therapy. So, for example, um, sometimes people will have memories of childhood sexual abuse, let's say, and at a young age. So how do you really tell if it's a symbolic representation of what was going on or if it actually happened to them? From a therapeutic perspective, it doesn't really matter. It's like experience the the fear and the anguish and the uh, the pain as as deeply as you can. And whether it's actual or symbolic, the opening up to that flow of energy, opening up to those feelings, processing those feelings, can be therapeutic, regardless of whether that incident actually happened or not. Let me ask a clarifying question. Are you suggesting that it is either symbolic or it actually happened, but could there be a third option where it was neither symbolic nor it happened, but it was just something that was suggested that got implanted in there somewhere? And are there unintended consequences of exploring that if, in fact, that third option is out there? Yeah, I, I do think that the third option is out there, or, or let's just say a fourth, which is that when we talk about this um, unity of consciousness or this this sort of spiritual mystical experience, you could be tuning into somebody else's pain. And I mean, there there are people being murdered, tortured, uh, starved right now, all over the world, and so that's part of the the global human experience and so when you have an experience that's going through these levels of pain most of the time we're unaware of it or we don't pay attention to it or it doesn't guide our actions you know you, you can have experiences that are sort of this collective humanity that's not your own personal biography but is still important to experience and go through and so i think this um, support, this preparation and support is crucial for psychedelic therapy because you are really bringing to the surface deep things that are profound and powerful. And a lot of times, you know, we have not really been trained in emotions 
to process them or to handle them. And, and then people will freak out or people will freeze or people will misinterpret and project onto others. And, and so I think this is a process that involves powerful energies that has to be done in a very careful and supportive manner. And that's why it's so interesting what you're doing at MAPS, because it isn't just this free-for-all. It's really intense research. And I'd love for you to have a chance to describe that research. Yeah. Even getting kind of deep into the weeds and particularly MDMA and its effects on severe post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't know what constitutes severe PTSD. Well, from the perspective of the FDA, there's a measure called the Clinician Administered PTSD Scale, the CAPS. We now have the CAPS-5. So whatever the CAPS-5 measures is what PTSD is. And that's why we, we've got this one measure. It's been used around the world, translated into most, uh, most languages of the world, validated. And that's maybe that's made, made our research a little bit easier because we have a valid measure. But in terms of the symptoms that people would really understand, severe PTSD has uh, this element of um, hyper-reactivity that, that people are triggered, that, that things are in their environment constantly remind them of the fear of the trauma that happened. Uh, on the other hand, the opposite almost is emotional numbing that people have um, to try to deal with the painful emotions. They become numb to it, that there's this intrusion on daily awareness of this events from the past that happens in nightmares. It happens you know, as these triggers that people see, something reminds them, somebody was um, you know, assaulted by somebody in a red hat. They see somebody else in a red hat. It's perfectly normal, but that brings them back to that situation. Sometimes people are scared to be in crowds. They're scared to leave the house. Severe PTSD is very debilitating. It's hard to hold a job. It's hard to have a relationship. It's hard to, um, you're, you're also very much um, hypervigilant all the time. That increases stress. It increases all sorts of physical problems. And so we felt that because of uh, the controversy over MDMA, that we really needed to work with the hardest cases. And in, in most of these cases, people have already tried and failed pharmacotherapy and or psychotherapy for PTSD. So we felt that if we can work with the hardest cases for, for most of these people, other things have been tried and failed, that then... If we did get good results, that would be meaningful to regulatory agencies, uh, to the public, to the media. And that fortunately has turned out to be the case. And can you describe the study? Who controls the various supplies of psychedelic drugs for the study and mm-hmm. and the different phases of the drug research and, and where you are now? Yeah. So um, first off, this is only going to be... Um, a prescription drug prescribed to the doctors. It's never a patient. This is not a take-home drug. This is something that is only administered under supervision. So the the control of the drug is something that the DEA is very much concerned about in terms of drug diversion. So we have very rigorous systems in place for the actual control over the drug. The therapeutic process is basically three and a half months long. And in this process, there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions from a male-female co-therapist team. 
So it's actually two therapists for one person. So it is expensive uh, in a sense in terms of therapy time, but we feel that it's the most effective when it's done that way. So it's a male-female team. People often go um, into quite regressed states. They deal with a lot of childhood pain and, and suffering. And so having a well-functioning male-female team of therapists can be restorative in, in ways that uh, just a single therapist uh, could not be. And so within this three-and-a-half-month process, there's three of these 90-minute sessions before the first MDMA session. There's only three times that people get MDMA. And these are roughly three to five weeks apart. And they're eight-hour sessions. And people stay the night in the treatment center. People are quite exhausted after these sessions. And we want them to have time out of their lives to reflect, to rest, to process. And the very next day, after they've spent the night in the treatment center, there's often um, several hours 90 minutes to several hours, psychotherapy called integrative psychotherapy to process what happened and to help people think about it um, and to monitor them closely. Then they go home and we contact them every day for a week on the telephone just to check in and see how they're doing. Sometimes people feel like so much has come to the surface that they need to come back for another um, integrative psychotherapy session, non-drug psychotherapy session, which we'll accept and, and provide. And so the, the concept is that in a three-and-a-half-month process where there's only three days that people get MDMA and 12 non-drug sessions, um, what we found is that 12 months after the last experimental session, two-thirds of the people no longer qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD. At all? Not just a matter of chronic PTSD, but no, not even a diagnosis of PTSD at all? Right, right. And the, the other one third, many of them have had substantial reductions in symptoms, even though they would still qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD. And in those cases, for some of them, maybe one or two more sessions would be helpful. But there, there is um, no drug that works for everybody, and this doesn't work for everybody, and we do have our treatment failures. We find that the people that are the highest on dissociation, um, so a lot of times when you are traumatized, you split off, like, uh, you know, you, you sort of pretend you're not there. And, and then that can have lingering consequences for people highly dissociated from what's going on around them as a protective measure. So it maybe was protective during the incident, but it becomes maladaptive later. So we find that people that are high on um, dissociative scales take more time to heal. But we, we are very much aware that the healing is done by the patient, that we are providing a context for people to heal. We're providing a drug that reduces their fear response to difficult emotions. But people need to um, have the courage to face what's inside them, to face their memories, face their fears, face the emotions connected to that and express them. And that that's a choice that, that everybody does. So there's a way in which this is very different from classic psychoanalysis, where in a sense, people free associate on the couch, and then the therapist is the one that delivers this interpretation to you, and that's supposed to clarify things. And right. the therapist is the one that's doing the healing. In this, we're not the healers. We're the, we're the midwives. We're not giving birth. <laughs> right. Take a minute to get into the weeds of this study for just an understanding of how it works. I'm trying to envision how you do a double-blind study with a drug with such obvious effects and how 
how you measure effect size. And then also, can you describe how you measure the effect of the therapy or the effect of the specific type of therapy versus the effect of MDMA alone? Well, great questions. Uh, so I did um, end up after I couldn't get into um, clinical psych PhD programs in the late 80s because of the controversy, I went to Harvard. And so I have a master's and a PhD from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard in public policy, but focused on the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics and marijuana. And a big part of my PhD dissertation was on methodology related to the double-blind question, because that is really the crucial methodological question about how do you do a double-blind study with drugs that are so powerful that um, it's hard to um, um, not be aware <laughs> that you've either got right. a placebo or a psychedelic. And so one of my favorite quotes is by uh, one of the early presidents of Harvard, and he said, uh, never forget there's always a Harvard man on the wrong side of every issue. <laughs> and I, I say that because that's how I opened up our meeting with the FDA. And I said, I thought I solved the double blind problem in my dissertation. But after years of experimentation, I realized there is no solution. So what I thought we would do in terms of trying to address the double blind problem is to test the therapy with low doses of MDMA versus the therapy with full doses of MDMA. So everybody would think they're getting MDMA. Everybody would have the same kind of expectations, but just some people would get low doses and some people would get full doses and they wouldn't necessarily know which is which. And, and we did show that that produced uh, blinding, that, that a lot of people were confused as far as whether they got the low dose or the full dose. And the therapists were also confused sometimes too although less so than the patients. What we were able to um, realize after a lot of experimenting with low doses is that the low doses produced an anti-therapeutic effect in that they encouraged people to open up, but they didn't provide enough of the fear reduction. So people felt very uncomfortable and very nervous and they were wanting to drop out of the study. And, and so they still got better. But what we showed is that the people who had the therapy with an inactive placebo did better than the people that had the therapy with low-dose MDMA. It may be that, I mean, I don't know if you're hypothesizing yeah. this, but as I'm listening, I'm curious whether that may be that it affected the low-dose, affected the hippocampus to a larger degree than it did the amygdala and that imbalance made things worse. I don't know. Um, yeah, that, that could be. I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure what the neurological explanation is, but, but I think it's also the fact that the context here, these people have been struggling with PTSD for a long time. Now they're supposed to confront it, and the fear reduction is not there. So what we presented to the FDA, and we said, you can choose the blinding, but you're going to make it easier for us to show a difference between the two groups than if we just did it between the therapy with an inactive placebo and people will probably realize and the therapist will probably realize that um, it's just the inactive placebo. But the real question is, why add a drug if you can do it with therapy? Right. Why take the risk of a drug? So we said to the FDA, we're willing, we think that you should not make it easier for us to go 
to, to make a difference, to show a difference here, but get the blinding. But we think that you should um, let us compare the therapy without drug. And what the FDA then said to us is that in the absence of the success of the double blind, first off, they said that the double blind fails in practice way more than people realize. That with SSRIs, there's all sorts of side effects that you get from the drug. That in psychiatry, there's, there's all sorts of side effects from the drugs. Even if you don't have such a dramatic, subjective, acute experience as you do with psychedelics, but that the double blind fails in practice a lot. And what they said was the two most important things about eliminating experimenter bias from the study and, and bias from the study is first off, random assignment, meaning that everybody is similarly motivated and half of them go into your control group and half of them go into your experimental group. Right. A lot of studies are done, just you take volunteers and then they'll go through your treatment and then you compare it to the, the larger group of people, but it's those volunteers that are more motivated to succeed. Self-selective bias, right? Exactly. So first off, random assignment. And then the second is independent raters that evaluate PTSD symptoms. And so we had to develop a very complicated new set of procedures that were different than what we did in phase two in order to satisfy this question of how do we make sure that the independent raters are as unbiased as possible. And so what that means is that we're working with raters trained by the Veteran Administration in the CAPS-5, but there's a pool of them, a large number of them, around 20 of them. And it's all these ratings are going to be done on telemedicine through video, Skype, or Zoom, something like that. And the connection that we had in phase two, which was you know one rater per site, and the rater would track somebody at baseline, and then after the first MDMA, and the second, and then the two-month, and then the 12-month follow-up, that we have to break that connection so that the raters don't necessarily know, is this somebody's primary outcome measure? Is this their, um, after their first MDMA session, is this their 12-month follow-up? And so that's the way in which the FDA has told us to do the outcome measures. And that's, that's how the FDA has accepted it. And we went through a six-month process with the FDA called Special Protocol Assessment. And what the purpose of that is to debate every aspect of the protocol design and try to come to agreement with FDA. And there's a fellow named Bob Temple who is like the old wise man of the FDA. He's been there since 1972. When I first took LSD, he started at the FDA. And he's still there today. And he is their methodological Office of Science Policy expert. And they brought him in for this crucial meeting about uh, when I described to them how my solution to the double blind was actually incorrect, and it didn't work with MDMA. And um, and he's the one that sort of ratified this decision that we would compare therapy with inactive placebo versus therapy with full-dose MDMA. That's really, really interesting. It makes me wonder whether when the FDA approves MDMA for treatment-resistant PTSD, how important is the type of psychotherapy? I know you have your oh, yeah. MAP-specific treatment manual, but the efficacy of the psychotherapist. How do you, you know, for example, does MDMA work better with holotropic breath work or does it work better mm. with a Jungian-based therapy? What if someone's just a sucky therapist? Yeah. Well, thank God for MDMA. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the, the other part, though, is it's not treatment-resistant. Most people were treatment-resistant, but the FDA said that we should not require treatment-resistant. So this is going to be approved for anybody with PTSD. Oh, so but, it, so the treatment resistant is not a requirement for 
subjects to be in the study. Right. They just have right. to have a chronic or severe PTSD. Yeah, chronic and severe. Okay. So chronic means six months, severe is above a certain score on the CAPS-5, and almost all those people will be treatment resistant. But they just said there's a whole different methodological approach that you would need to take if you want to say it's only for treatment resistant PTSD. Right. And so we're saying the risks were not so great that it should only be reserved for the end of the line. In fact, we should be, you know, working with this eventually as a first line treatment. And, you know, just to underscore this point that, that we don't think the risks are so great uh, in a therapeutic context, uh, the FDA is requiring us post approval to do studies in adolescents with PTSD from age 13 to 17 to see if um, MDMA can be helpful in those situations as well. So they're of the view that the risks are not so great that it shouldn't be given to traumatized adolescents. So where are you with that? Well, I, I think it's it's really important. I, I think if I was a, well, I have three children. Fortunately, none of them are traumatized. But if I had a traumatized uh, adolescent, I would want to get them help as soon as possible because that colors everything. And and again, we're only giving MDMA a few times. So it's it's in that context, you know, it, it's really safe. But to answer your question about um, what kinds of therapy and so the way in which we're researching this drug, it's it's not MDMA, it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and we have our own unique treatment approach. So the only people that will be able to prescribe this once it's approved are people that have been trained in our therapeutic method. And that's part of ensuring the safety because the drug will, hopefully, we will prove the drug safe and effective when it's combined with this certain kind of psychotherapy. And everybody should know that psychotherapy. But once it's approved as a medicine, various people can modify the therapy however they want. That's what's called off-label prescriptions. Right. So people are not going to be required to practice the exact same therapy. We, we have um, a non-directive therapy. We don't use guided imagery. We, we don't want to plant ideas in people's heads. We want it to come from them. We tend to use music without lyrics. And oh, another thing I should say is that in this eight-hour session, roughly half the time, people's eyes close and they're listening to music and they're having their own internal experience. The other half the time, they're in dialogue with the therapist, although there are no particular rules for when that happens or it's all kind of spontaneous according to what the person is going through. Are there particular rules with regard to the music? Um, well, we generally say no, no lyrics. You know, there's kind of an understanding of the flow of music, that it's more peaceful. And at the very beginning, then it gets very energetic when the drug is at its peak, and then it gets more peaceful at the end. But people, we, we tend to discourage people from bringing in their own favorite pieces of music because they already have certain kind of patterned reactions to that, and we want them to be fresh. But occasionally, they can bring in their own music, but most of it is developed by the therapists. So I think there's this... Um, flexibility that happens in the therapeutic setting. And there's elements of other kinds of therapy. So you talked about Jungian therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, we're permitting, you know, people can reframe things like, okay, you know, you reacted with somebody from a red hat, but now you realize that every red hat is not on a person that's going to hurt you. And, and so can you, you know, so there's, there's cognitive behavioral components 
There's components of what's called prolonged exposure of going through the trauma. And what we're doing now is we're working in affiliation with therapists and researchers in PTSD who've been um, affiliated with the Veterans Administration. And so we are now funding studies to combine MDMA with other therapeutic methods, one of which uh, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, conjoint meaning couples therapy, where one member of the couple has PTSD, but it affects the relationship. And so MDMA is now we're giving MDMA to both members of the couple. And we're now developing a new approach from a traditional psychotherapeutic method for PTSD, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. And now it's a treatment development study to combine that with MDMA with a woman, Candace Monson, who's at Ryerson University in Toronto, who developed that before she used to be at the Boston DA Charge of Women's Health. There's another woman, Barbara Rothbaum, who's developed prolonged exposure. And there's a lot of people that prolonged exposure can help, but for some people it's re-traumatizing and it, it's too much for them. So Barbara is going to be doing a study that we're funding, blending MDMA with prolonged exposure. When you get FDA approval for therapeutic enhanced MDMA or MDMA enhancing ther therapy, how do you prevent, once it's approved, how do you prevent people from just prescribing MDMA as a free-for-all? I don't know how that works. Well, um, first off, we're saying this is never going to be a take-home drug. You know, it always has to be administered under supervision. And so, you know, to what extent is it, uh, is it some people end a session after seven hours, some after eight hours, some after six hours? I mean, th there'll be a fair amount of modification of what we have developed. You know, some people will use it in a, um, a Jungian context. Some people will do um, guided imagery. Some people will do various things. But we will be trying to develop um, systems of feedback so that we'll hear from any patients that feel that they were treated in an inappropriate way or where it wasn't helpful or, you know, we'll try to be very responsive to hearing from the patients. But there's this whole area of the practice of medicine. The FDA does not block off-label prescription. And the um, AMA, the American Medical Association, the American Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association, they're all very... Um, rigorous in saying that doctors should have this ability to experiment. So we're hoping that the training that we give people and the choice of who we let into the training will sensitize people enough to the delicate nature of working with PTSD patients with MDMA so that they will do it in a responsible way. And for those situations where it's not being used in a responsible way, if we get the feedback we can just say to somebody, we're not going to prescribe it to you anymore. And you're, you're done because there have been these critiques. And this segues into something I want to make sure that we touch on. I know we're going a little long. I hope you I hope you're OK with that, because I yeah, I, yeah, I want sure. to I want to understand how you've structured maps as a B Corp. And ah. and if you could describe that, how this came to be and whether you think this structure could be a model for other pharmaceutical companies. Yes. So MAPS itself is a nonprofit organization and people make donations to MAPS. We don't have any investors. People make donations to MAPS and they get a tax deduction for that. So that's how MAPS is structured. And what we started to realize a few years ago is that we might actually succeed. I mean, I started MAPS in 1986, so now we're almost 32 years. 
And we started realizing that if we do succeed and that MDMA is becomes a prescription drug, there's programs that the FDA has that are called data exclusivity. So that's for drugs that are off patent. MDMA was invented in 1912 by Merck. And it's the there's no the patent has expired. We've hired patent attorneys to help us develop what are called anti-patent strategies. So nobody could patent MDMA for anything. But this FDA data exclusivity means that for five years nobody can use our data to market MDMA is a generic drug. You do these pediatric studies, you get another six months. And then, so we realized that there may be an opportunity for us to guide the rollout of MDMA into society in a responsible way. And, you know, you hear a lot of talk about people saying that they don't like the legalization of marijuana because they're worried that big alcohol and big tobacco are going to get involved and they're going to sell to minors and they're going to advertise in ways that make it attractive to kids and they're going to just sell to heavy users and you get the profit motive where the profit is the most important thing and you're selling drugs that have an abuse potential and that's not good for society. And so we also realized that when we tell donors, I mean, it's going to be a $26 million experiment, phase three. Hmm. That's an awful lot of money. We've already raised about 20 million of it. So we're doing really pretty good there. But it's constant fundraising. And so if we can make some money from the sale of MDMA that we can then put into other research, then it makes it a little bit easier for the story I tell the donors. Help us get this approved, and then I'll be coming to you less because we'll be getting some portion of income from the sale of MDMA. That's why you had to make that separation. Yes, because the sale of MDMA for profit is something that should be taxed. It's not something that can stay inside the nonprofit. And so we created the Benefit Corporation to model a different way of selling drugs. And what that means, a Benefit Corporation is a modification of capitalism where you can create a corporation where your primary goal is not maximize profits, it's maximize social benefits. And you can define them in different ways. But that is your goal, is to maximize social benefits. And Therefore, what we're trying to say to the FDA, to the DEA, to the culture at large, is that once MDMA is a medicine, we're not like a traditional pharmaceutical company with stockholders where we're going to try to make the most money as possible. What we're going to try to do is promote the most healing and to roll this out in a way where there's not a lot of abuse and where almost everybody is, or everybody as best we can is, is really getting a um, beneficial healing responses from actually participating in this. So the Benefit Corporation is has only one investor. It, it is a for-profit company. It does pay taxes on the income. The goal is to make some income from the sale of MDMA. But the only investor in the Benefit Corporation is the nonprofit. Right. So I'm not making money on it. You know, we're making salaries, but nobody is making profits. The idea is that the Benefit Corporation is a model. And so there's the B Corp. Uh, people that have set up um, standards for benefit corporations. But there are no standards that specifically apply to the pharmaceutical industry. And it costs several million dollars, we've been told, from the B Corp people to develop a new set of standards that will apply to a new industry like the pharmaceutical company industry. And so there's a lot of for-profit pharmaceutical companies that would never switch and become benefit corps. You know, their stockholders would not permit it. But they still may try to adopt a lot of the practices 
of a benefit corporation. So, you know, that's they try to do that to some extent of having programs for people that can't afford the drug to, to be able to access the drug or where you set the price of the drug. I mean, we're seeing more and more that pharmaceutical companies are, um, you know, ratcheting up enormously the prices of drugs, completely separate from what it costs them to make it or what it costs to do the research to get it approved, but just because they can make more and more money. So we're not going to do that because what we're interested in really is building a base of improved mental health and spirituality in the world. And so we're talking about medicalizing psychedelics, Start and having it only be administered by trained people in psychedelic clinics. And eventually there's going to be thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics throughout America. There's right now 14,500 drug abuse treatment centers. There's 6,500 hospice centers. Um, there'll be thousands and thousands of these psychedelic um, treatment centers. And eventually they will move from just working with patients to working with family members of the patients, eventually working with people who want to have um, spiritual experiences or therapeutic experiences or personal growth or creativity or uh, even celebratory experiences. But the long-term goal is to make it so that billions of people have a spiritual, more of a spiritual orientation. They're not so easily manipulated into hating the other and being against immigration and to uh, demonizing people who are different from them. And I think that's really why uh, it's so important that we start in this narrow approach to medicalize psychedelics for particular psychiatric indications, but that it's linked to a broader program of drug policy reform and of reaching out to try to um, really help humanities under enormous stress with the environment, with the nuclear weapons, with uh, poverty. And when people are in such stress, a lot of times their rational brains shut down, just as what we said with PTSD, where there's reduced activity in the frontal cortex. And then people are more easily manipulated by fear, by the baser emotions. And so it's not that we have one bad leader. Um, it's about all the people that give away their power to the bad leader because they're angry, fearful, desperate, all of that. And so I think that's the, the bigger picture of where we're trying to head. And so strategically, medicalizing makes the most sense. And, and it's, it has to make sense in and of itself on the most rigorous scientific basis. And so that's what we're, we're doing with FDA. And we're going to start negotiating with the European Medicines Agency uh, next month and really trying to globalize psychedelic psychotherapy. That's really exciting. And I hope that listeners can decide if they want to learn more. We'll have all of the links to all of your contact and recommendations and books in the show notes. And we'll touch on how people can get a hold of you and any ask that you have. Before we get to that, though, I like to end with something that I call QCQs or quick curious questions just to give, <laughs> just to give a little nice. bit of peek, a little peek into you personally. So the first QCQ is what was the best under $100 purchase that you have made in the last year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Um, well, I would say marijuana. <laughs> okay, then you have to be specific. I'm calling you from, you oh. know, we're I'm in here in Oregon. We don't just say yeah, yeah. marijuana. We want to know the strain, uh, the, you know, the whole okay. thing. Okay. Um, the, the reason I say marijuana is because I use it for creativity. And I use it to solve problems. And so 
Uh, lemon haze was a, a strain that I got in Colorado that I, I thought was very um, energizing uh, in terms of uh, mental creativity. That was obviously a sativa. Yes. Okay. Yes. So lemon haze. We'll put a link to that maybe through Leafly. All right. If you could give your 30-year-old self any advice, what would that be? Be patient. That, uh, you know, I remember I took LSD on my 30th birthday as a way to celebrate my birthday. I took it by myself. And I, I had had this idea, I guess many uh, teenagers and people in their 20s have this idea that when you're 30, somehow or other, you're really grown up. <laughs> and I, I, I recall under the influence of LSD thinking, I'm not really as grown up as I thought I'd be. <laughs> Maybe we need to prescribe that for every 30 year old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'd say being patient, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, it does seem like a big number and you should be, you know, mature and all grown up, but you still got a lot of work to go. <laughs> okay. That's good advice. And finally, what was one thing, just one specific thing that you have experienced that you wish everyone could experience. MDMA. Okay. So now I have to ask a follow-on question because you said it just like that. And I said, everyone, so that now I have to, now I have to talk, bring up one thing that I was going to try to close on that, but you ruined it for me. Uh, I, there's a neurotoxicity issue with MDMA. Has anyone ever died from MDMA overdosing? Um, yeah, yeah. People have, um, well, it's not so much MDMA um, as MDMA in certain contexts. So people have overheated and died, taken MDMA at raves and parties. And you take it sometimes uh, in a hot environment and you overheat and it's called hyperthermia. Some people have died from what they thought was the appropriate harm reduction strategy, which is to drink a lot of water. And so some people have died from hyponitremia, which is you dilute your blood too much by drinking too much water occasionally, super, super rarely, MDMA increases blood pressure a little bit. And so um, given the fact that tens and tens of millions of people have taken it, but I have heard one time of an elderly person who was uh, interested in taking MDMA was told to take a, th this is now back in like 1984, and he, he was advised to take a small dose of MDMA and he took a large dose of MDMA and he had a heart attack. So n nothing is completely safe. Um, you know, we, we do not give it to bipolar people. We exclude people who are psychotic. But that's a lot to do with the context. Those kind of people should take it in an inpatient context where there's a lot of support. It may or not be helpful, but but I think there are risks for MDMA for sure. Okay. So breaking down the experience, what would be your instruction manual for everyone to experience MDMA ideally? Well, first off, think of it as a two-day experience, not just a few hours. It's very important to rest the next day, to give yourself that time to think about it, to integrate it. A lot of times people say that the, the day after is the best. Uh, they, they enjoy it even more than the day of because there's like this half a second lag in, in a way between your pattern responses coming up and the deepening that took place under the influence of MDMA. And so that's where you're really able to do a lot of work integrating it and trying to make some of these changes, these experiences that you had permanent. So I, I describe it, it's like you, you go up on a ladder, you know, from MDMA and it's very, or any psychedelic drug, it's very important to be very watchful as you walk down the ladder because when you get to the lower rungs, those are not that far from how you normally operate. So you, you could even say people can learn when they're in an emotional situation, just take a deep breath. 
MDMA is like that deep breath. You just let things settle for a moment. Uh, it, it's similar to meditation. It's So I, I'd say, first off, think about it as a two-day experience. Secondly, don't do it with anything else. Don't combine it with marijuana. Don't combine it with uh, alcohol. Don't combine it with LSD. You know, just try it by itself just to see what it is. Also, it's important to have somebody that's not doing it there so that you have somebody that's the buffer between you and the outside world. And so you can be defenseless. You can completely go interior and you don't have to worry about answering the phone or the door or protecting your physical space from somebody coming by. So it, it is a very good idea to have somebody who is not doing drugs. I mean, it's really important. I didn't say this, but uh, I sort of assumed that people would know, but you know, our therapists do not take MDMA when they're with the person. You know, shamans sometimes will take the drug, ayahuasca or other drugs, in a group setting with people. But in our therapeutic setting, the therapists are the ground control. They're the ones that are not doing psychedelics. They're empathic, and they've learned from their own experiences. But um, it's very important, I think, to have somebody that's the intermediary between you and the world so you can go deep into your inner world. And then the other part of it is to really think about long term. I mean, this is going to give you some insights, but long-term change will require you to practice and, and realize that that's a part of the process. And uh, don't be so impatient in a sense when it fades, when a lot of it fades. It's a short-term experience. When, when you're working with PTSD patients, you can really help them reorient very much to how they relate to their trauma and process the trauma. And, and profound change can happen in the moment. But it is important to really do the integrative work over the long term to try to anchor uh, the experiences. So sometimes I, I've been, you know, it's hard to predict when it happens, but there's been moments when I felt like I was on MDMA, but I wasn't. Hmm. This is good advice, kind of a step-by-step. -step. How can people get in touch with you? And if you have an ask or asks of the audience, what would those be? Well, I do have a big ask and the ask expires on March 30th. I'm not sure when, um, when this will be go live? It'll be live before then. Oh, great, great. Okay, so um, this is a very interesting story. There, there's a fella, um, Pine is his name. He started the Pineapple Fund. He was an early Bitcoin inv uh, investor, and he made loads of money, loads and loads and loads of money, but he was still somewhat depressed, and he went to therapy, and under the influence of ther the therapy that he went to, he decided it would be ketamine. And ketamine is being used more and more for the treatment of depression. And so he, under the influence of ketamine, he realized that one way to be less depressed is to help other people. And he decided to become philanthropic. And so he announced the Pineapple Fund. It's pineapplefund.org. He's giving away $86 million worth of Bitcoins. He's already given us a million dollars worth of Bitcoins in December. And now he's set up a $4 million matching grant challenge that expires March 30th. And if we can raise the $4 million and then we get the $4 million from the Pineapple Fund, we should we will have enough money for making MDMA into a medicine through the FDA. We may need some more for the rest of the year, for the rest of the world, I mean, you know, in Europe and the rest. But right now, if anybody makes a donation to MAPS, if you say this is restricted to MDMA PTSD research, it will be matched. And people can also make multi-year commitments, which will also be matched. So that, that's our ask is help us the capstone donations to make this into a medicine. We've been at this now almost 32 years. Um, so far, we've 
raised about the almost 20 million of the need that we have to make this into a medicine. So um, right now it's financial, but it's also the other ask I'll, I'll make of people is to um, really educate yourselves and try to educate others about the real risks of MDMA. You talked about neurotoxicity. We don't see that there's any evidence in the doses that we give, in the few times that we give it, that there is any neurotoxic effect whatsoever. And the animal research uh, backs that up, that the, um, the no effect levels for neurotoxicity are above the levels that we're giving in therapy. So under the conditions where people don't overheat, um, so I think people educate yourselves, educate others, um, re reduce um, misinformation uh, out there in the public, because it's really public support. And that's why I'm so glad Becky, to be doing this with you is because the public education is what really is more important than the research, because when the public education is not there and people are scared, the research politically gets shut down. And now we're in a situation where people are hopeful. We have a more balanced set of sense of what things are actually doing. And so I think it's, we have to really focus on public education as we start um, making even more progress and move towards prescription use. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy that Applied Curiosity Lab Radio can be a tiny part of demystifying this research, de demystifying psychedelics, and also spreading the word about your work. I really appreciate the time with you. This has been a blast and I've learned a lot. <laughs> great, thank you, great. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Rick Doblin is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at AppliedCuriosityLab.com forward slash blog. And the question... Would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the Tribe of the Curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.